coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazzwell Report. Thomas Jefferson once said, I believe that every human mind feels pleasure in doing good to another. And the key words here are doing good. But here's my question for you folks. At what point does doing good become crazy? Well, my next guest is so good that some might think her to be insane. But I mean that in a good way. She's one of those unsung heroes who's dedicated her life to charity and doing good for others. But you might say that there are others who do the same. And we've had guests on this show who've dedicated their lives to philanthropy, but... There is a little something different about my next guest. She was brought up in what seemed to be an ordinary family, but from a young age was subject to sexual abuse by some members of her own family. When she turned to the house of God for help, she was then further sexually abused by her own pastor. And to make matters worse, in her pursuit to help others through her charitable work, she suffered from assault and rape. Yet... Despite these traumatic experiences, she's risen above it all to help those who are helpless in the remotest of places on earth. It's an honor to welcome the founder of Makeway Partners and the author of Passport Through Darkness, Miss Kimberly Smith. Welcome to the show, Kimberly. Thank you, Vip. I'm excited to be with you and share today. Oh, I'm so excited for you to be here, too. Now, you're what I consider an unsung hero. So let's get to know a bit about you, because our listeners will better understand where you're going if they know where you've come from. Mm. Just share with me, what events in your life have been significant in shaping you to be who you are today and what you do do? Well, that that, that is a huge question. Mm. And, and some of the things that you mentioned, uh, particularly these three dark points in my life, certainly have gone a long way in shaping me. Um, when I was just a little girl, um, there was a family member um, that I loved dearly, was a very charismatic, bigger-than-life sort of person who gave me a lot of attention, and I really loved this person in my family, but when I was only six or seven years old, he began to betray me terribly by sexually abusing me. And my family was not um, a Christian family, and sometime when I was 11 or 12 years old, I began going to a local Baptist church, and there was, again, a very charismatic older man, the youth pastor and music minister at this church, who Again, the same sort of pattern gave me a lot of attention, was a very charismatic, bigger-than-life, seemingly very good, well-loved man in the community. And again, uh, he betrayed me by sexually abusing me. And I think that these things from a very early formative age Mm -hmm. um, helped me to understand that there are a lot of broken people in this world and a lot of darkness that needs to be confronted. But, you know, you were thinking about others, um, but, I mean, what, what gave you sanity and faith? Well, sanity is a relative word, and I'm not sure um, how sane I am a lot of times, but I am very passionate, and I do feel strongly about injustice, and I do feel strongly about suffering. And I think because... I know my own brokenness. I know my own suffering. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel very empathetic when I see it. I recognize it in another. And I want to do something about it. Well, let's turn the question around then. How 
did you or how do you avoid going into the depths of depression and remaining bitter? Well, um, I don't think I've ever struggled with depression, but I have certainly struggled with bitterness and resentment. Um, just how dare you sort of um, feelings. And I think that the best way that has helped me to come out of that, and I don't stay out of it, of course, we're human and things can trigger us and we feel angry again all over. But the thing that helps me is to be honest about it. I have to be willing to name it. If I can't name that I'm angry, that I'm hurting, that I feel bitter, that I feel resentment, if I can't be honest about that, if I won't be honest about that, then there's not a lot of opportunity or room to move through it. So how do you mean when you say, uh, I, I wish to name it? Usually that for me starts with someone that I can trust, mm. someone that I can be honest with. And that's, that's a hard thing for someone who has experienced betrayal, um, which all of us have in some form or fashion. Um, it, it's difficult to trust, and any time we trust, we're going to be betrayed on some level. But to keep working through our lives and growing in discernment and learning who you can trust, who's a good person or who is maybe charismatic and seems to be good, but um, it's more about themselves or their ego. And I'm very fortunate in that I have a husband who is that go-to person for me. And I start by naming with that person or a few trusted friends that this is my experience. This but did, is how I feel. But did you ever confront the people, the individuals who did wrong to you? I did but not until I had a lot of help with trusted people first. After naming that um, abuse or that resentment or that fear or that suffering, the next step for me was to get outside professional help. As great as my husband is and as much support as I have from several lifelong friends, they can't give me everything that I need and walk me through this. I need objective people. So I've reached out for professional help through a number of means, um, other pastors, counselors, professional counselors, therapists, trauma specialists, and found resources to help me process these things. After doing that for a number of years, I did, I have gone back and confronted both the family member as well as the pastor who abused me. And in each case, what happened? They were two separate cases, and I did it at two separate times. Mm. Um, the pastor was actually the first one because I, as, a, as a kid, when he had left the church, I didn't know where he went or what happened to him. And as a young adult, I was back in that community, a similar community, um, searching for a new church. And I walked into this church not knowing he was there, and there he was. And it just so angered. By this time, I was a young mo mother, and it so angered me to think that this man was still fooling people and was still behind a pulpit and still had access to children that I went immediately and confronted him. And he and his wife, his wife came in, and they both begged me not to tell, promised me he was a changed man, that everything was out, and that... Surely I wouldn't speak to these things because it would destroy not only his ministry but their adult son's lives. And I gave him the ultimatum that he would tell the senior pastor at the church or I would, and he would not, and so I did. 
I went to the senior pastor of the church and told the pastor what had happened, learned that that pastor was a former um, police chief in the area, and so he assured me that he would confront the situation and deal with it. This went back and forth for a couple of weeks, and I realized he wasn't going to do anything, and so I finally called the Baptist Association myself and told them what was happening. He was never taken out of his position. He was allowed to keep his position. The only thing that I got at the time was that I was assured that now it was public knowledge among the leadership and that he would not be allowed to be alone with children. I look back on that, and it's very bittersweet for me because it was my first experience with Mm. speaking up and out against the injustice. I had never told anyone at that point in time about what had happened. And so in one way, it was a very empowering experience, and it was good practice, so to speak. But I look back, and I also wish that I had gone directly to the police myself. But I was a young mother at the time. and um, Well, you said it was a good practice. So did you take that now and go back to the family member? I did. Um, after some more help and some more uh, counseling and processing through this slowly by slowly, I did go to the family member, and the family member handled it similarly in that he did not deny it, neither one of the abusers, which surprised me. Neither one of the abusers um, denied it. They both admitted to what they had done, but both also said that they were changed men. And this family member um, did confess not only to me but to my parents what had happened, and just asked me that I not tell his wife and children, which I have never done. This is the first time that I've ever spoken to this publicly. So in some bittersweet way, were, were both instances victories for you? Did that help make you feel better? I think it made me feel less a victim. Right. But I had some choices. It was coming to terms with that, okay, it was an awakening experience that evil happens. Mm-hmm. I can't control that. But how I respond to it is where my choice comes in. So what, well, I'm, t- what I'm taking away from both these instances was, one was to accept your pain yes. within yourself um, and then confront it. Yes. And then I think there's a third Mm. step, and that is to allow that pain to be transformed in me in such a way that I recognize it in others and can reach my hand out to them. And that's what makes you unusual, because then you've taken your life and you've dedicated it to helping others full time. Am I right? Well, the full-time thing, um, anyone who knows me will tell you that I don't do anything a little bit. It's all or nothing. (laughs) That's right. For better or for worse. Now, you're the founder of Make Way Partners. Co-founder. My husband, Dr. Milton Smith, founded it with me. What is Make Way Partners? We are a Christian mission organization who is committed to going to the worst places on the planet where darkness is at its blackest pitch Mm -hmm. and human trafficking, modern-day slavery, genocide um, is 
oppressing a people. And for us, currently, that is Sudan and South Sudan, where we save. Currently, we have 1,500 orphans under our complete care program. So what's the purpose of Makeway Partners? Do you go and rescue them, or do you, what do you do? We do rescue orphans who have been either abandoned in the war zones of Sudan, South Sudan, Darfur, but we also act as prevention. Maybe they've not been trafficked yet, mm-hmm. but their parents have been killed in this genocide um, or the civil war in South Sudan. And so we take them from the bush or the caves where they're hiding in the mountains of the Nuba Mountains because the northern government is still bombing them on a regular basis. And we bring them in to our orphanages and schools. We feed them, provide care for them, 24-hour security, education. Because there is no governmental infrastructure whatsoever, they don't have schools, they have no education. So we do everything it takes to raise a child and protect a child in a very loving environment. Just a question here. You said you're a Christian mission. So if some of these kids are Muslim or of some other faith... Would that prevent them from coming in to your mission? No, of course not. Uh, Many of them are Muslim, particularly from the Nuba Mountains or the Darfur area. Mm -hmm. Many of them are Muslim. Many of them would tell you they're nothing or they're spiritist. They, They don't use that word, but they would claim, they would describe something that we would call spiritist or animism, meaning they worship nature or use the local witchcraft and witch doctors and We see all of these children as um, the divine image of God here on this earth, just as we all are, the dignity of humanity in each and every one of them. They know that we are there because we are Christians. That's what motivates me to go, the love of Christ. But that's not um, the purpose for these children is not to take them away from what they know. It's rather to reach out to them and offer them love. But do they embrace Christianity in their, uh, when, when you're helping them? Some do. Um, of course, some do. They, they see a different way, something that they want. Some mm. do. Um, some don't. Uh, some heal from their trauma. Most all of our children have been um, raped or severely abused before we ever get them. And, or they know that they watch their mothers be raped. Rape is a weapon of war in Sudan and South Sudan. And Many of our children saw their villages burned to the ground, their mothers raped, their fathers murdered. And so we will commonly get six-year-old boys, for example, coming in, and they will be vowing to kill one another because this one knows that that one's father killed his father or this one's father raped his mother. And so they will vow to kill each other. At such a young age. At such a young age. But now, what's the age range of the, of the orphans that you take in? We take newborns whose mothers have died in childbirth, um, and we have um, children as old. I call them children because we didn't get them until they were already older, but they might be 18, 19, or 20 years old now because maybe we didn't take them in until 10 years ago, and they were already um, 9 or 10 years old and had never gone to school because there was no public school available to them. And so they start with us. They might already be 10 years old, but they start with us in the first grade. And we do not age them out for as long as they are applying themselves in school. And as they get older, if they're willing to share in their responsibilities and uh, apply themselves, then we will carry them all the way through high school and even advanced education. We've built the first high school in our region. And all of this work is indigenously led. 
we have more than 300 indigenous employees from both Sudan and South Sudan that provides the daily care for them within their own cultural context rather than just taking in our American ways. This is a professional setup, so how do you get funding for all of this? It's all through private donations, individuals, um, your listeners, people who have read uh, my book, Passport Through Darkness, or find us on the website, Mm -hmm. makewaypartners.org, churches, um, foundations, family foundations, to a variety of means just from people who hear about (laughs) such an unusual and amazing work and want to be a part of it. You've said everyone except the governments, our government and the Sudan, the government of Sudan. That's right. Uh, Do they know of what you're trying to do? Yes, both the United States government. I've spoken to quite a few congressmen and have received what I would call a lot of attagirls, pats on the back, telling me, good work, keep it going. And um, the Talk is cheap, of, though. I'm sorry? Talk is cheap. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and the government of South Sudan um, is verbally supportive of what we're doing and appreciates what we're doing, um, particularly in South Sudan. But the corruption is just so high, so extreme that nothing trickles down. Even the billions of dollars that the United States government sends into South Sudan, it doesn't trickle down to boots-on-the-ground type efforts. Uh, it's so frustrating sometimes because our orphanages are up to 2,000 miles away from the nearest supply chain, which is Nairobi, Kenya. And there are no roads or bridges to help us transport the food, and so we're transporting all of this food, medicine, building supplies over 2,000 miles of hostile terrain with no roads and no bridges. And sometimes when we can't get trucks through, we are forced to buy USAID food, which has been dropped on the ground, mm-hmm. but no one oversees distribution. And so the local businessmen, corrupt businessmen, seize the food. And then if we're not able to get food in from Nairobi, Kenya, we will be forced to buy large grain bags of food that are stamped USAID, not for resale. And we purchase it in order to keep our orphans from starving. So I guess the answer to my question is the U.S. government or the South Sudan government don't help. No, they do not help. And the but they do, they do North, know of your existence. They do. The government of North Sudan is worse than not helping. The government of what is called Sudan now, since the countries have split, mm. the government of Sudan is complicit in the problem and has been the ones committing genocide against not only the South Sudan, Sudanese people, but also their own people in the Nuba Mountains of South Sudan. Uh, I'm sorry, the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. You know, these are very exotic places. Um, it begs the question, why didn't you choose to help those closer to home? I really, my husband and I both felt really strongly that if we're going to do this, and it was not an easy decision um, to throw our lives into this sort of work, but if we're going to do it, then we want to do it where no one else is helping. We, We don't want to just be a repeat effort because it looks good or sounds good or what everyone else is doing. We, If we're going to bother with doing it, then we really want to go to those who are most desperate, most vulnerable, and where it's either too expensive to get to, um, too time-consuming to get to, too dangerous to go to. Um, But all of those factors that keep 
the mainstream relief organizations from going. We wanted to go where the people were most desperate, make the biggest impact. It seems to me you wanted to help those that time forgot. Mm. Well said. I'm going to write that down. Oh, absolutely. Free of charge. <laughs> now, in, 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 in this trip, and this is where now it starts to get a little tricky, you were assaulted and raped in one of your trips. Can you share with us what happened? Yes. Um, I had been on the ground for a number of months mm. um, in the Darfur area. Um, my husband is not able to go into Sudan or South Sudan because he's an insulin-dependent diabetic who had some organ damage during some early work that we were doing in the Iberian Peninsula. And so I had been there for a number of months by myself and um, working with our indigenous leader, our first indigenous leader, James Luwala Talk, on the border of Darfur. Mm. And we had rescued a newborn baby whose mother had died in childbirth. And um, it's a long story, and I go into details in Passport Through Darkness about this baby. But the baby was now about a month old and had survived, and so we thought we had found a safe woman for him that would take care of him within the community. And we had given this child back over to a community woman and promised her a subsidy if she would care for him. But the local culture is quite brutal if a um, baby... If a baby's mother dies in childbirth, then there's this belief, um, this legend, that the mother calls the baby from the grave to come and be with her. This is a way that they cope because there's no formula, there's no food. The women can't wet nurse because they barely eat enough calories each day to um, feed their own baby. And so this legend has sort of been created in order to justify allowing the baby to die. They put the baby in a tukul, which is a, a thatched building, and just wait for the baby to die. And they say it's because the mother is calling him back. So we had thought this woman was safe and that because of the subsidy she would take care of him, but the pressure from the community was too great, and she put him back in a tukul to die. And it was late in the evening, and a man came to let me know that um, he, the baby was back in but didn't know where the baby was or wouldn't tell me where the baby was. And so I went out to try to find the baby. I couldn't find Luwala Talk, so I ended up going alone, which was not the best thing to do. Uh, and I knew that, but I waited out. I struggled. I waited. I looked for Luwala Talk. I couldn't find him. I knew the risk. I counted the cost, but I went looking for this baby. After some searching and the sun was starting to go down, I remembered that often Luella Talk liked to sit down at the riverbank and watch the sun go down, and so I walked down toward the river, and as I rounded the bend walking down the hillside toward the river, I came upon um, a pack of Darfuri refugee men, and they didn't know me. They hadn't heard of me yet. I was new. I hadn't been there that long yet. And they saw um, a white woman that um, was not one of them, was not part of their tribe. They have been so, the Darfuris, this was in the height of the Darfur crisis um, seven or eight years ago. And so it was a brutal, panic-driven time. And so I tried to run away, and they caught me. And a number of them raped me and beat me. And it was actually a South Sudanese soldier who heard the ruckus and came and rescued me. 
So I'm forever grateful to that Southern Sudanese soldier, of course. Now, it's, now with such a traumatic experience, how do you again manage to come out of that and continue doing the work that you do? Well, um, the story really has a beautiful ending in that the soldier took me back. Um, Did you find the baby, by the way? Yes. That's, <laughs> I didn't then. Um, I thought it was over. Um, I thought it just it couldn't get any worse. At, this, at that point in time, um, I was pretty desperate when the southern Sudanese soldier had a machine gun that he had used, an AK-47 that he had used to... Um, Back off the my attackers. And How old were these attackers? I'm sorry. How old were these attackers? Um, there was a group of them. Uh, I think the hardest thing for me was that one of them was a teenage boy that couldn't have been um, any older than some of the very young men that we had rescued and that were in our orphanage. That was a really difficult thing to overcome. That fear. Hmm. Now, the kids that you rescued were victims of prostitution and pornography? Yes. By saving these kids, are you trying to, in some sort of psychological way, try to rescuing your past as well? I would say not only psychological, I would say physically, I would say my very heart and soul, mm. that it is only by the grace of God that I am still alive. Um, still able to function, and it is um, something hardwired within me that knows that if I if I pull my hand in and only care for myself, it will wither. It is only by continuing to reach out to others who I see are as broken as me, maybe even more broken, no more trauma than me. It, it, it is in extending my hand that I keep from growing rusty and weary. Keeping to reach out keeps me alive. Now I take it you're not allowed to enter Sudan, am I right? That's right. Why, why is that? Sudan. Well, the, as I said earlier, in Sudan it is the government um, that is doing the genocide, that is committing the genocide, that is dropping the bombs on our children, on our staff, on us, on the people of, of the Nuba Mountains. And so they know the work that I'm doing, and I'm not able to get a visa to enter into Sudan. But you still go there? I do. Um, I fly to Nairobi, Kenya, or um, Entebbe, Uganda, and from there, that's as far as we can go commercially. And from there, we hire um, private mission charters that will fly us um, a couple of thousand miles up into southern Sudan that takes us to the border of, just south of the border of Sudan. And there's a refugee camp there, and we will stay at the refugee camp for a day or two after being dropped by this mission plane. And then we hire trucks or find ways of driving ourselves up to the Nuba Mountains to get to our orphanage. So you're the first U.S. citizen that's an illegal immigrant. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but we have nearly 500 beautiful orphans there in the Nuba Mountains who just a few years ago were cowering in the caves, hiding from the bomber jets and the slave raiders and 
the warlords, and now they are, you can see them on our website, megwaypartners.org. You can watch live videos of them um, singing and studying in school, and we believe that the hope for the future are these orphans. In a, in a country with millions of orphans created from war and genocide, who's going to be leading these countries one day? Have you ever approached the celebrities? Because I believe George Clooney does something with Darfur. Yes, he, he's been in Darfur and um, Yuba Mountains as well. Several have. So have you ever got in touch with him? No, um, we've tried. We've, we've sent some letters um, to, to a couple, and we've, we've not had a response at this point. Hmm. We're, we're very um, small and low-key, I guess you would say, and we just haven't had that, um, haven't struck that chord, I suppose. That's sad. Um, do you think this sort of danger excites you? Um, because you're doing good, you're doing great. Um, but it's all the result of overcoming danger. Is that sort of an adrenaline? It's a bit like, you know, when I was a kid, maybe even now I get a certain thrill when I do something I'm not supposed to. I enjoy being naughty. Uh, you know, the fruits of naughtiness are always that much more delicious. <laughs> Well, d- adrenaline, yes. I will definitely say um, once um, I was in a little three-seater plane trying to get up into um, South Sudan, and our engine went out midair. Uh, no place to land, uh, nothing to do. Mm. Um, we-, we crash-landed. I survived that. Was there a lot of adrenaline in that? Yes, of course. Uh, a lot of adrenaline in that. But there's also, you know, you just can't let your emotions drive you. It's, it comes back to just knowing yourself and knowing your emotions. So it's not adrenaline rush that drives me, but yes, is it there? Of course, just like the extreme sadness when a child has died in my arms, which has happened many times. Now, people have limited resources when it comes to charitable giving. Mm. So why should they pay attention to Make Way Partners? One is I think that it's something that no one else is doing and reaching children that no one else is attempting, even attempting to reach. We have phenomenal success rate. In the last 10 years since we've begun housing our children, we've not lost a single orphan, not a single, whereas the year before, before we built, we lost 278 orphans, and the number one cause of death was hyena attack because they were sleeping out in the desert at night. Now, with all the recent terror, th- terror threats, sorry, uh, like ISIS, uh, and the Ebola uh, and the dangers to Americans abroad. Are you still planning to visit Sudan? Yes, I am. Uh, why? Um, it's my life's work. I, but I you know, you're entering the place illegally. Uh, there are terrorists on the lookout for uh, Americans and white Americans at that. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you going to do if you get caught and put in jail? Well, I would hope that I would be killed quickly. Well, to that I might say your critics might ask that at what point does risking your life stop making sense? Because, you know, putting yourself at such a risk might be a reflection that you might lack self-respect for your own life or that you don't value the love that your family has for you. You know, I think it's just the opposite. Mm. It's that I have such extreme respect for the dignity of God in each and every person that I can't pretend like I own it. 
Own what? Own the dignity of life. It's not mine only. The one in you, the dignity of God working in you, the dignity of humanity in these children, that will surely die. It's not what if they get caught. They will surely die if no one helps them. It's an honoring of that dignity. But if you die, no one will be there to help them. Well, that's not exactly true either. Um, that, that would make me pretty grandiose if that was the case. But the reality is that everything we do is, in, is indigenously led. And with three different orphan locations and 300 indigenous employees running those orphans, it's not dependent upon me being there. But, but you're providing the funding, right, that they're dependent on in order for them to carry on their work. Yes, Makeway Partners is, not me personally. And so hopefully your listeners will understand that there is an infrastructure through which to support, not just a person. I just happen to get to be the spokesperson. What do you feel when you're helping the helpless? I've always tried to figure that out because it's so easy for me to write a check. Mm. But when it comes to doing... Mm. What makes you do? Or what do you feel? What do you feel after you've done it? You know, I think there are two really strong feelings that I have. Mm. And that they might seem uh, contradictory, but they're both there. And the first one is I feel extremely fragile. Um, when I see the brokenness of a starving, traumatized child... Um, a woman who's had her uterus torn out with sticks and told that this is so that you cannot make black babies or so that you cannot make Christian babies. When I'm holding that woman, when I'm ministering to her, when I'm cleaning her wounds, I feel so fragile, so powerless. But by the grace of God, it could be me. It could be my children, which would be even worse born in a different time, born in a different place, born of different parents, that could be me. And there is this shared humanity that puts me in touch with my powerlessness, and it's a very fragile feeling. And at the same time or at the end of the day, how I feel is really good because I do know my life matters. I know that the choices I make are making a difference. And there is power in that. What sort of power? A beautiful, life-changing power. You see the difference that, okay... Um, Does it give you a high? Mm, no, I think the highs I would limit to, not from helping, the highs I would limit to those um, airplane crashes that I was talking about a minute ago. Those are the adrenaline rushes. When you're really dealing with the brokenness of yourself, when I, when I face my own broken humanity or in another, no, it's not a high. It's a very fragile process and then a beautiful redemptive outcome. What's the outcome when they see you and they see you helping them? And obviously, they don't, I'm guessing, they don't speak English? Um, 
many of them do, especially our children in our schools every day. They study their mother tongue, English, Arabic, and Kiswahili. Because if these are going to be international leaders as we are raising them to be, they need to know the languages that are working throughout this part of Africa. So they study four languages every day. But have any of them ever said anything to you that has been like profound or very meaningful and it makes it all worthwhile? I think the most profound thing ever said to me was a couple of months after my attack and rape that I told you about a few minutes ago, and I, I mentioned that I was really scared. I had a lot of fear because some of our boys in the orphanage, um, by American standards, I'm a fairly large woman. I'm 5 feet 7, 145 pounds. And for Americans, that's pretty good size. But for the Dinka, which most of our children at that particular orphanage are Dinka, they're very tall people. And so our teenage boys would tower over me. And I, I found myself, I was observing my behavior and realizing that I had really shut down and pulled back, withdrawn from especially our boys, probably mm. people as a whole, but especially our boys. And it troubled me, but I couldn't seem to do anything about it. <laughs> I couldn't seem to overcome that. And, um, but I, and, and I hadn't, of course, spoken with them about anything that had happened. And one day as they were queuing up for open assembly, they stand in these long rows. We have 750 children at that orphanage on the border of Darfur, they're standing up in the morning, queuing up for their open assembly. And I, I realized it was, it, it was a do-or-die sort of moment for me, and I decided that I was going to reach out and touch every, make myself touch the head of every single child and just pray a blessing for them and um, opening, trying to open myself back up to them. And so I was walking up and down to the lines, and it was the first time I had ever done something like this, and none of the children were speaking or sure what to do. And then one young man, about two-thirds of the way through these long rows of children, this one young man who was at least six feet tall, he stooped down so that I could touch the top of his head. And as I touched the top of his head, he looked me in the eye, and he said, Peace be with you. And I don't think anyone had ever said the fear inside of me just, it passed away. His eyes spoke peace. And this was a child who'd been a child soldier who had known war and trauma his whole life, but he was extending himself towards me. And that meant the world to you? It does still mean the world to me. Do they all know what you've been through so that they could be there? No, the children do not. Our leaders do, mm -hmm. but our children do not. At some point they will know, but um, we've not spoken with them about that yet. Passport Through Darkness. What is it about your book? I would say it's about two things. Mm. Um, one is it chronicles the journey of me moving from corporate America which had been my, at that point, my life dream was to make a lot of money. <laughs> and I had pursued that with all my heart and all my passion, and I did make a lot of money. But now you're richer in a different way. Yeah, because I got there and I thought, okay, now what else is there? 
and it just didn't seem to matter enough. But it was actually my husband who had this wild idea of moving overseas and becoming missionaries, and it was through that journey that we discovered our first brothel stuffed full of African immigrant children in the Iberian Peninsula. So the book chronicles a little bit of that journey, but it's really not about human trafficking, although we tell those stories. And it it is an educational tool, but mostly it's a very heartfelt book for people who might be scratching their heads and thinking, hmm, what is my life really about? And is it making a difference? Does my life matter? If I died today, what tracks am I leaving behind? Will it really matter? What's the period at the end of my life sentence? And I think people who ever ask themselves, whoever wonder what difference their life is making or what tracks they're leaving behind, that's the person most likely who will enjoy reading my book and getting a lot out of it. Do you think sometimes that maybe you are too deep in your beliefs and values for people to relate to? No, I don't think so. I think when I talk about these things, most people... It gives them permission because mm. most of our to to wonder the same things because they're probably already thinking it, but we just don't talk about it much. We talk about the weather and we talk about the economy, and we talk about the news and we talk about uh, money. But inside, I think every person wants to know that they matter, and so I think when I talk about it, it gives them permission. Where did the three words come from for the book, Passport Through Darkness? Because obviously they're very symbolic. Mm, definitely. I think the title speaks well to the cyclical nature, mm-hmm. um, as I learned as a child, of darkness, um, of evil even. Um, it wasn't once. You said cyclical nature. What do you mean by that? Well, as you introduced the show... Mm. You told that, all right, she was abused in her home. And then she sought solace in the church, and she was abused in the church. And then she gave her life for service, and she was abused through her service. There's a cycle there. Um, So passport through darkness. I could say the same thing about passport through joy. Um, We don't stay necessarily in any one place for our entire lives. We're not in control. We like to think we are. But we're not in control. And for me, the key to sanity or wholeness, you asked me earlier, how do I stay out of depression or despair or bitterness? It's being willing to name whatever is going on in the moment. And it's through that that my life is able to keep moving, moving, moving. And I have experienced a lot of darkness. And so I share the journey about how I've been able to move through darkness and this cycle of joy and peace, serenity coming back through. Pleasure, even. Play. Where can we get the book? Well, you can find it at Amazon.com or your local bookstore or website, Makeway Partners, Mm -hmm. or find me on Facebook, Kimberly L. Smith, my author page. Now, you know, the experiences of your life can teach us so much in terms of of resurrection of our own spirit and soul. What would be your message in how best to do this for those who think they've hit a low point in their lives? Mm. Because you keep getting up. Mm. That's true. Um, 
I would say the first thing is to do what we talked about earlier, Viv, and that's name it. Um, don't, don't, we so often we stay in denial of our pain. Uh, we, we put on that plastic smile and we meet the world, you know, with our game-changing face. And it's just phony. It's not real. And there's no chance for real joy and real delight, real pleasure with that. So I think the first thing is to admit to yourself where you are and how you feel and to find that trusted someone that you can speak it to. That's the first step. Speak openly with someone you can trust, someone who will not shush you, someone who will not tell you get over it, someone who not, will not shame you or tell you to shut up. Find a confidant that you can speak with. For advice or just to listen to you? Just to listen. You want that person just to be your friend, someone who will just listen, a trusted confidant. But then number two, yes, Find a professional. Don't look to your friend to give you advice. Are professionals that good? Because if I had problems, I'd feel slightly embarrassed, uh, a little ashamed of myself that I'm going to go seek professional help, and I'd probably be thinking, what do they know about my life? Well, you know, in our image-driven society, in Mm -hmm. our image-driven culture, it is very difficult to ask for help. We, We do act like, you know, we're supposed to be able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That is the American way. Push on, push up, succeed. But that's really not very honoring of humanity and our struggles and our limitations. And so, you know, I think part of, number one, admitting I'm hurting, I'm suffering, I've got problems. That helps us deal with number two, which is, okay, so I need help. (laughs) Help, 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 help. And uh, receiving that help, you're right. We have to humble ourselves to do that. Now, you bring your kind spirit into your home as we get to the end of the show. Um, Tell us about your pets. (laughs) You recently acquired one very interesting animal. Yes, um, really fortunate. Um, just this last weekend, hmm. um, I have been gifted with a new pet. Um, his name is Rusty, and he is a thousand-pound Pasofino horse. Um, I got hold of him because he has been severely abused. Uh, a man was beating him. He has scars on his head and scars down his back on this beautiful creature. You can see him on my Facebook page. If you like my author page, you will find him. Um, he's just a beautiful creature, but right now he's, he's very wounded. Um, if, for the first few days, if I even tried to raise my hand to his head, uh, he would rear up and buck and just go kind of crazy. Because, mm. um, he had been beaten in his head, and um, that's been really meaningful and um, metaphorical, but also literal for me because my attackers did kick me in my head. Um, a good bit in Darfur, and so um, being an animal coming my way who's had similar trauma and to be able to look in his eyes and know that wildness, know that feeling of going berserk and you've just got to break something, you've just got to do something, you've got to kick, you've got to scream, I know that very visceral feeling and to be able to reach out to him in kindness rather than shaming him or trying to break his will is a real gift to me and helps put me in touch with my own brokenness all over again. It's very interesting because when I asked you about your pets, you said you were gifted. Um, Someone like me, an ordinary person, or maybe less than ordinary, I would consider looking after the horse, a broken horse, a burden. 
Mm. And you're calling it a gift. I find that very inspiring. Mm. I woke up at 3.30 my first morning after getting him. I woke up at 3.30 in the morning and had to just run quickly, drive down the road and get to him so that we could watch the sunrise together. And it was so inspiring to me that he recognized my voice. Here this traumatized horse was, but he recognized my voice. And I just sat there in the darkness with him waiting for the sun to rise. And it was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had in my life. Well, on that note, Kimberly, thank you for coming on the show and wishing you all the best for Makeway Partners and those beautiful kids and, of course, all the success for your book, Passport Through Darkness. Thank you, Vip. It's been my joy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswal and my Facebook page. Just type in Vip Jaswal Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a happy week ahead.